Well, good evening, my friends. Um, it is great to be with y'all. I feel like I have some idea of what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that he has awaited this moment with them because he, he knew that he had something great to share. And I feel like a friend who has um, important financial information for you. And I think that that might be a true statement for us tonight. That I have something great to share with you that I don't want you to miss out on. So we'll be in Amos chapter 6. And tonight's, tonight's message will really kind of conclude a section in Amos. So for the last several weeks, we have been in chapters 3 through 6 studying several of Amos's sermons. And so, as I imagine all of these sermons that Amos has given, most of them are much the same. God's people are in sin, and um, God obviously has something to say about it. But Amos wants to draw them to repentance and ultimately to freedom. Each message has been unique and different, saying much of the same thing, but really addressing a different spiritual condition that God's people had. Um, so if you, if you look in your Bibles, if you're looking above chapter 6, you might have a subheading. You might have a title. It may say something like, to the complacent or to... Um, the self-indulgent or warnings to Zion and Samaria, which is really interesting that we could have any one of those and they would all be relevant and true. I think that they're semi-accurate and somewhat fair assumptions, but as I've studied this week, the Lord has given me an understanding over this passage, over what he saw over Israel, and that is greed. Greed. And so if I was titling, not if I was, I'm titling tonight's message, and if I was titling Amos's message, I would title it, Woe to the Greedy. And Amos's message really has just two sections. The first section is a lament for the greedy. It begins, Woe. And the second section in verses 8 through 14 is God's judgment on those who are greedy. So it's a pretty straightforward message, not like some of his that have lots of poetic ideas and poetic tools and lots of imagery and symbolism. Amos is going to give us a straightforward indictment to those that are enjoying comforts of wealth while exhibiting arrogance and indifference to the demands of justice and righteousness. So if you join me, we'll read first just verses 1 through 7. Amos says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and see... And from there, go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is your territory greater? Is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seat of violence to come near. 
who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they shall go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. So this is a really interesting um, paragraph that Amos has. And it's got several what are called woes. In verse 1 it begins with woe, in verse 3 it begins with woe, but really the reality is this whole section is a woe. And a woe is a word that's translated as alas or woe, and there's really not a word like it in English. It expresses grief or lament over the dead. Woe is used discussing the dead. So Amos is speaking like those who have been given the death penalty. I'd use the word yikes. Yikes is a word that I use sometimes. In fact, it's a word that frustrates Rebecca when I use it kind of out of context to something that's not so dramatic. But yikes is what Amos is saying. He's saying it both over what they have done and the judgment that is certain. It's really in and of itself a condemnation over these people for where they are. Yikes, when we are in greed. So Amos is going to kind of describe several situations for which they would have no response. He's not going to tell them what greed looks like or sounds like. He's going to tell them why they are guilty of this sin. In verse 1 he says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Now this is the first time that, that Amos is going to speak to both the Israelites and those in Judah. But he describes these great places in the mountain of Samaria and really Zion, which is Jerusalem. He says, Woe to you who sit in your nation's capitals, certain and confident and secure. Those who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. He's talking to them as leaders and officials, elite, the wealthy, the haves. He says, yikes, that you are secure and at ease. You should know better. Next, he uses a, a rhetorical statement which is really kind of a nice way of saying sarcasm. He says, go over to Kalna and see, go over to Hamath, there the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. And what is interesting about each of these places, it's not important to see them on the map, but these are places that at one point in time belonged to Israel and were stolen by their enemies. 
What he is saying is you are so arrogant and prideful and assuming that you are God's beloved, that you are God's covenant people, that God would never allow an enemy to attack you, that no one could penetrate the walls of Samaria or Jerusalem. No one could invade God's holy space with God's holy people. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? This would be really salt in their wounds, so to speak, because they know that not only are they not better than these pagan nations, they are far worse spiritually, but that these places were stolen from them by the enemy. Verse 3, it says, Woe to you who put off the day of doom. This is almost an ironic statement that they would procrastinate doing what is right, assuming that the day of doom would never come, assuming that God's judgment would never come. Right, deep down when we're in sin, when they're in sin, they know what they're doing is wrong. Right, there's part of us. Deborah always teaches that no matter where we're at spiritually, we always have a choice. We always have an opportunity to know what is truth, and they are refusing it. And woe to them, yikes, Amos says, you foolish ones that you would procrastinate like homework and put off this day of judgment as if it'll never happen. Then he says, who caused the seat of violence to come near? This is to suggest, of course, that God's judgment over them is certainly their own fault. That they are causing and provoking God to violence. And this is really a dual meaning because it's not just for them now, it is for their generations and generations. That they are provoking God to come against his people. The next verses are, are almost so insane. He says in verse 4, Who lie on beds of ivory. Now even today in the greatest nation of the world with all the wealth that America has, I've not known of anyone who lies on a bed of ivory. Now that may seem uncomfortable, right, compared to our beds of of, of soft mattresses, but these would have been wooden beds that would have been inlaid with ivory. It wouldn't enhance the comfort of the bed. It would only suggest to others their great and grand wealth. So all the rest of Israel would be laying on the dirt with a cloak, and that would be considered a bed. They would be building up for themselves mountains, so to speak, of great and fine wood and laid with ivory. Then they would stretch out on their couches. Couches weren't actually a thing really then. I mean, no one invited someone over and, and, and hosted them for a Super Bowl party and, and opened up their home with couches at, at all corners of the living room. Couches were only for the elite wealthy because only the elite wealthy would, would just sit around and waste their time staring off into space. They would stretch out on their couches. Next, Amos says that they would eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. These are, of course, describing the best of the meats. 
the tender portions of young lambs and calves, those who were are really just continuing to eat of their mother's milk and not be out in the danger. They weren't eating of strong muscles, they were eating of tender, tender meat. These lambs and calves couldn't provide for more than just a few meals at a time instead of the, the ones that were mature and grown that would provide for a full village perhaps. The insanity continues in verse 5. Amos says, Who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments. I almost imagine like a scene from a movie where there's a, a, a few people driving down the road in a convertible with scarves around their necks, kind of just laughing frivolously how grand life is. So are these people. That they idly sing to the sound of stringed instruments. And they invent for themselves musical instruments like David. This is a sarcastic statement that Amos is making because, of course, David played the harp. Right? You remember that Scripture says he was brought in before Saul to play the harp for him and calm him down. So David was playing before the Lord and would write psalms to the Lord's glory. And they are making instruments and singing songs to their glory. Verse 6 says that they would drink wine from bowls, right? Not just a, a chalice or a goblet or a small cup, but that they would have giant bowls filled with wine for consumption. Not just drinking for hydration or even a little celebration, but to, to get drunk and to have their complete fill, these were bowls, this word translated for bowls was actually the, the, the bowls that would have been in the temple, right? The idea here is that these were the bowls that were in the temple for pagan worship, that were rededicated from Yahweh worship to pagan worship, and then taken into the homes of the great and wealthy for their consumption, intoxication, and overindulgence. Then they would anoint themselves with the best ointments, well, what they were anointing themselves with was oil. Oil meant to anoint for God's purpose. They were using to just put on like makeup and to treat their skin and to have all of this greatness that at that time was seen as completely unnecessary. All the while, verse 6 says, but you are not aggrieved, excuse me, but you are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. What's unique about this idea of the affliction of Joseph is that this is kind of a picture not, not just describing, of course, Israel, but Joseph. Joseph, whose brothers were without. So all the while, the great and wealthy in Israel who are anointing their heads with oils, who are drinking bowls full of wine, who are wasting animals and eating only the choice particles who are sleeping on mattresses of ivory and couches made with great supplies, they are refusing to be grieved by the affliction of their brothers and sisters who are without. Verse 7 says, Therefore they shall go now captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquet shall be removed. So what God says is, even before we get to Amos' judgment on them, 
that because of all this, they will be the first to go. Those who know better will be the first to be judged. It's such a horrible picture. It is a horrible picture of God's people in Israel who considered themselves unaccountable to Yahweh the Lord. They no longer praised God for his protection and provision, but they sang songs glorifying themselves for victory in battle, for their great possessions, for their grand homes. These people of Israel had contempt for the reminders of those who were righteous people that would suggest that they take care of the widow, the orphan, the poor, the foreigner, and they'd physically cast them from their sight and refuse to hear the Lord's ways. Though Amos' last sermon, the one that we studied from last week, would call them to let God's justice flow forth and cleanse them and then flow through them to others, the rich and the leaders of the Israelites to refuse to return to God and follow him. They refuse to be a holy people of the Lord. So to them, let's read what what Amos will say next. We'll read verses 8 through 14. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And then when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies and takes them out of the house, he will say to one inside of the house, Are there any more with you? Then someone will say, None. And he will not say, excuse me, and he will say, Hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar, who say, have we not taken name for ourselves by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. This seems to me, of Amos's five sermons, perhaps the most aggressive tone from the Lord. All seem aggressive, all are full of judgment, all you can, you can sense God's holiness coming out. But in this one, God, it says, the Lord God has sworn by himself. Now, the Lord has sworn by himself once before in chapter 5. It uses his full name. It says, Yahweh, um, 
excuse me, it says, it says, Lord Adonai, it says, Adonai, Yahweh, the Lord's full name has sworn by himself. When we studied this before, it means the Lord is sevening himself. The fullness that the Lord can express his holiness and his character. This isn't swearing as some might swear today, but instead the Lord is invoking his own full name. To say, I myself, the Lord of hosts says, I hate the pride of Jacob and I hate his palaces. The Lord despises this this character that would allow Jacob to do such things. Because the very things that Israel are doing is not just breaking God's law. It's not just bad for mankind. It's not just poor treatment of their brothers and sisters. It is against the very nature of God. When we see our sin against the very nature of God, it should change our perspective. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Sometimes I think that that we focus on the result of our sin. We we assume that God is so upset with what we have done. God is far more concerned with the spirit that has caused us to do what we're doing. See, God first says that he hates this pride of Jacob and he hates the palaces that are as a result of it. When we consider this what I'm certain is a spirit of greed, we should be confronted that God hates and detests this spirit. Yes, he hates what is the result of it. But God doesn't want us to just clean up the results. He wants us to be delivered from what causes those results. Therefore, he says to Israel, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Every filthy thing that you have amassed as a result of these these evil ways, every palace, every house, every altar, I will deliver it up. Verse 10, or verse 9, it says, Then it shall come to pass that if ten remain in one house, they shall die. We're reminded of this from chapter 5 where the Lord says he will destroy whole cities, great and small, whether it is 10,000 or 100 or 10. The Lord reaffirms his message from chapter 5. Then in verse 10, it's describing this scenario where one is, is cleaning up a city, so to speak, is tending to the dead, is tending to these dead bodies. And if they come in contact with another... And there might be another that was left somehow unslain, that none would speak of the Lord. He's saying that in their minds, they would not even want to utter the name of the Lord, lest judgment come on them. There will be a terror, a lament, a great fear brought on all of Israel because of this judgment of the Lord. For 11 says, Behold, When the Lord gives a command, he will break the great house into bits and the little house to bits. This is to say first that when the Lord is giving this command that it is certain that it will happen. 
I know we know this. I know that if we would read this scripture, we wouldn't argue with it, that when the Lord says he's going to do something, that he's certainly going to do it. But I think it's easy sometimes to align with the spirit that Israel has and just assume some level of protection around us that isn't certain when we leave God's camp. When we leave God's camp, when we leave his ways, when we hear his voice and we refuse to receive it, we leave his protection. And when we leave his protection, there is judgment that is certain. He says, for behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. So as a result of the sin of Israel, the Lord's judgment will come and it will come on the small and the great alike. It won't just be on the great, rich, and wealthy who have oppressed the poor. This judgment that Amos has been talking upon will come on the poor who are in alignment with this spirit as well, whether they are great or not. Verse 12 moves to a couple of rhetorical questions. For Of, of course the answers are, are, are no. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow with oxen? Now I should first say that the second part, does one plow there with oxen? There is some debate over the translation of this phrase, but I agree with, with other translations that, that says, does one plow the sea with oxen? Is what I believe it says in the Hebrew. And so of course for these statements, this is foolishness. No, horses do not run successfully on rocks. They would slip and fall and hurt their ankle and they would be, they would be of no use. And of course we cannot plow the sea with oxen. These are ridiculous statements that Amos is suggesting. But we should hear them and recognize that sometimes we make similar suggestions to the Lord. Maybe it's okay to remain in sin and still hear and align with your ways. Maybe it's okay to just go a little further than the bounds the Lord allows and think that we still have his protection. Amos says, yet you have turned justice into gall, into poison. And you have turned the fruit of righteousness likewise into bitter herbs you who verse 13 says rejoice over Lodabar who say we have not taken Karanim for ourselves by our own strength have we not taken Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength these are, are similarly sarcastic statements um, Lodabar is capitalized because it was a city that was in Gilead that was worthless. It was a ghetto. It had no fertile land. It was worthless. And the words low to bar mean good for nothing. Also, low means no, and debar means word. So it, it represents a place that is absent of the Lord's word. So he's saying, you who rejoice over these types of things, the absence of the Lord's word, living in a ghetto, living in a place that's good for nothing. Or, who say, have we not taken Karanim for ourselves by our own strength? These Karanim were, were horns that were filled with, with black, um, basically black makeup that would be used and they would feel victorious for for having these and capturing these horns and, and wearing this makeup. And it says by their own strength. 
How foolish we also are to think when we are victorious in any way, when something good happens, that it is by our own ability or our own strength. Or worse, that we can stand toe-to-toe with the enemy in our own strength. For all these things, Amos says in verse 14, Behold, I will rise up against, excuse me, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arbaugh. These are cities that stretch both far beyond any place that Israel has ever inhabited to suggest that this enemy will come against you from every side and will inhabit every part of God's territory. So this is a really strong, strong message that Amos gives. Um, this week, um, I have um, I've been studying about these these ideas of greed, because the Lord Lord showed me that that this is what Israel has, and. Um, Greed is not anywhere in this passage that Amos gives. And so as I began to study about greed, I was, um, I, I was pretty blown away um, what Scripture says about greed. Because there are, there are many words, there's probably a dozen words between the Old Testament and New Testament that are translated as greed. But there are two that are, are primary and give an idea of what I believe the Lord sees when he sees Israel. So we read this sermon and it is um, accosting us with this behavior of Israel. But I think that we can, we can imagine all of these things happening and we kind of render how they don't necessarily fit into our lives. Certainly we would never be those that would sleep on ivory beds or those that would oppress the poor for our own gain. But see, this is just one example of how Amos is prophesying to God's people. These are simply the things that Israel had done. Likewise, God could use this idea of greed to speak to each of us very differently. So as I study these these different words for greed, most of them include violence, desire, and love. And they're applied to a variety of things in Scripture, primarily wealth and power. But each of them doesn't just say greed. They, they, they are inhibited by an action like violence and desire and love. And those are very strong words that cause greed. See, greed really is the result of these actions. So the, the first word, there's just two that we'll look at. The first word is a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, and it's the word batza. And it means to cut off, to gain by violence, to plunder, 
to covet or to gain. And even just as I, as I read these, it just at face value, and I think about to cut off. I, I mean, I don't even know exactly what that would mean in certain biblical context, but I think about driving here tonight. Have we cut someone off? And what an image of greed that really is. Right? Our position in the lane isn't good enough. We have to get to the position where they are. Maybe they accidentally cut us off, and to prove a point, we needed to recut them off. To gain by violence, to take something with aggression, with hostility. It says to plunder, as if to steal and rob and take what's not ours. To covet, to desire something that's not ours, or to gain. And even just to gain is such an interesting idea that that to gain would be greed. That to receive something. The Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament by Jesus, by Paul, by Timothy, by Peter, is the word plexania. And it is commonly translated as greed or covetedness. And it can be understood as ruthless, self-seeking, or insatiable desire. Now, neither of those are, are a hard sell to understand greed. Ruthless, self, self-seeking, or insatiable desire. This week, as I've been dwelling in this reality of greed, it seems to be at every turn in my day. Right, it's easy, I think, to want to reduce greed to a financial ideal and assume, well, we are not millionaires, therefore we don't have greed in our lives, or we are not um, titans of industry, so therefore we cannot have this greed of power in our lives. But see, that's how we see a word like greed. God sees the spiritual root of greed. As I began to see this, I saw how powerful it is. See, greed, even as a spirit, is violent. There is no passive or gentle greed. There's no go-with-the-flow kind of greed. There's no greed that's okay with what has been accomplished so far. Greed's desire, even in us, is to go stronger and more powerful. It is to plunder and to gain. It is to plunder us spiritually, to gain for the enemy's camp spiritually. We must seek to see more than the actions of greed, but the evil spiritual authority. I was thinking even about the scripture that says that, you know, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, plural. See, the love of money is a synonym that people often use for greed. And they, re- they reduce it and they just say the love of money. And it is, they just say money is the root of all evil. Right? But the love of money, which is synonymous with greed, it is wanting gain, it is wanting more, it is never quenched. And the love of money in place of God can be the root of all kinds of evils, plural. Because, see, true greed is not satisfied with just money. True greed wants more evils and more evils. 
to come under its belt. And this greed brings with it an authority. It brings with it a great oppression. And I believe that all the places that we would read about in Scripture that refer to wealth or riches or power don't say that wealth or power are evil anywhere. But they warn us. The Scriptures warn us to be careful with wealth and power. Because the enemy is coming for those with wealth and power to bring them into greed. Those are just pictures because I believe that greed is present in many other places. This is what had overcome Israel and caused this blindness and complacency. We could read about Israel and go, how can they do this? How could they sleep on beds of ivory and they could cause their brother to sleep on dirt? How could they, they waste the fatted lamb that's been living in the pen and then allow their brother to go starving? But this is what a spirit does. is It brings fog to our eyes, it brings complacency to our spirit, and it brings, brings contempt to our hearts. Maybe you've seen the movie Wall Street or you've heard the line that greed is good. Oh boy. I mean, even when I didn't know what goodness was in God's word, that, 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 that very idea just caused me to, to cringe. That greed would be a good thing. And we live in the capital the capital nation of capitalism in this world where greed is good. Greed brings prosperity. Greed brings change. Greed brings increase in technology that provides for the poor, right? And we, we sociopathically ascribe these things to greed. We baptize it with the American dream of getting all that we want. And we baptize the American dream with this manifest destiny that God has provided all this opportunity for us. But God's word screams out to us that not only is greed bad, it is not good. It is not in accordance with God's word and God's purpose and God's heart. I believe that, that greed is the greatest spiritual condition that Amos has addressed. A spirit that would not just turn brother against brother, but brother against God. This week as I've been seeing this spirit of greed before me, like a, like a stop sign off in the distance, like a speed limit approaching to slow down to, I've become spiritually aware. And the greatest danger and the greatest harm is applying greed physically only. Imagining greed only applying to our bank accounts or our job titles. But greed is spiritual. See, greed isn't just what we, what we deserve or don't deserve, or what we're entitled to or not entitled to. A lot of the words that we read could be only imagined as taking what we don't deserve, right? 
But the Lord showed me that greed is being dissatisfied with what he has provided. That is a far greater call to action for Israel and for us than just not wanting more stuff. Greed is desiring anything that God has not provided and being dissatisfied with what he will not provide. And for that, God has said, I've had enough. Therefore, woe to the greedy. Lament and terror for the greedy. I'm so grateful for this word, like I said to begin, because the Lord has changed my perspective. Not only do I not want greed in my life, I'm excited that I don't have to have greed in my life. If we have greed, then we are in bondage to the enemy. And we don't even know what reality is. We don't know what financial welfare could truly be to us. Or what powerlessness before the king of kings could truly be for us. If we are delivered from this place of greed, then not only do we not have to be in bondage to the things of this world anymore, we can be in right standing and humble before the Most High God. I pray that we would hear these words of Amos and and the Lord tonight and that we would seek to be rid of the enemy's grips on us for his purpose. Amen.